If you have your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 2, please. Luke chapter 2, we're finishing up our look at the songs of Advent. It's a very special song. We're going to read verses 1 through 20. What every person is looking for is glory. We were made with glory and we were made for glory. Now, because of the fall, we now fall short of glory, and we look for it in the wrong places and in the wrong things. The the story of the Old Testament is, in a lot of ways, the story of God's people being constantly reminded about God's superior glory while constantly pursuing lesser glories, even pursuing their own glory. And so to solve the problem, finally, God turns the reminder of his glory up to 11, as it were. This is the Advent song um, that we're going to want to crank up in our hearts this morning. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us to see a vision of the glory of your Son, that we might be changed by it, that we might be filled in our souls with the goodness of the glory of the grace of your gospel. We thank you most of all for Christ Jesus, and we ask that he would be seen preeminent in our hearts, even in the preaching of this sermon. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, we notice a few things about the Christmas story here probably shocking to some of you, is that there's no drummer boy. There's no drummer boy. Thank God there's not a drummer boy. There's not even any wise men, at least not yet. The the wise men don't show up until a little later when Jesus is practically a toddler, actually. 
Um, you, you don't need to, if you have a nativity scene at home, nativity set at home, you don't need to throw the wise men out. Just, just understand that um, the scene is sort of compressing the narrative into one little um, visual. You'll also notice that there's no hotel. There's um, no inn, at least as we often conceive of it. Now, if you have the ESV translation or some of the others, it'll say there's no room in the inn. But when you see that there, you, you shouldn't think of an inn in terms of like a hotel. Mary and Joseph didn't like show up to the Motel 6 and the manager say there's no vacancy. And so they went and looked for a barn, right? This isn't a hotel like that. This is likely uh, the home of some extended family. Uh, but because more people are in town for this census, the, the guest room, which is what that word actually, um, um, actually means is a kind of guest room. In fact, the same word that's translated uh, in this passage as a guest room in the ESV, an inn or the inn, uh, is elsewhere in the Gospels translated as upper room. Um, and so it really is likely because so many homes back then, um, even small homes, would have a space designated for guests. Um, hospitality is a very cherished value in, in this culture. And so they would have a place set aside. So when family was here or just others who were passing through, traveling by, you would want to practice hospitality for them. And so um, what has happened is all these people have come in town for this census, and perhaps there's other people there for other reasons. But by the time Mary and Joseph get to this home, the guest room is full of lodgers, and there's no room for them in the guest room. So they're staying in another area of the home where animals are usually stabled. It's not exactly a, a barn, but it's, it's probably a covered area that's connected to the home. Um, it wasn't decorated for Christmas. It, it didn't have you know, a Christmas tree up. It didn't have lights and tinsel and all those sorts of things. I was thinking about this this week, about Christmas decorations. Becky and I spent a couple of days earlier in the week on the plaza. And if you've ever been on the plaza at Christmas time, you, you see everything is lit up and it's just really pretty at night. And I began wondering, like, why do we decorate for Christmas? What, what's the, the purpose in it? Why the garland? Why the wreaths? Why the lights, the tree and the bows and all that sort of thing. Um, I know to be festive, right? Like, I mean, this is what you do when you have a party. You, you decorate, perhaps. But I also think, because deep inside, we all know that Christmas is about glory. And I think that explains somewhat why we, we leave it up even longer than normal. Like, people who de you know, decorate for Halloween or something, like, they don't leave Halloween decorations up for six weeks. Maybe your neighbor does. I'm very sorry. But most folks, like, they put those things away, you know. Christmas, though, like, we put it up early. We leave it up late. And, um, we, you know, we try to add to it. We're constantly trying to, I don't know, like, Griswold our house up, you know. Um, my I noticed this um, yesterday, so December 23rd. My neighbor was adding Christmas lights to the bushes outside his home two days before Christmas. I thought that was very strange. And all I could picture was him sort of looking at the yard at one point last week and going, it needs more glory, more, more glory. And so he and his wife were adding some Christmas lights into their bushes two days before Christmas. I, I, I think all of this decorating is, is kind of like our feeble attempt at trying to capture some sense of the kind of glory that's proclaimed in this passage. We know that Christmas should come with glory deep down, even if we don't have those words, we don't have that vocabulary. And so we're just trying to like kind of, we're trying to do it up because we know that we've got to do justice in some way to what this um, event is all about. 
Our final Advent song is found here in verse 14, the the angel's proclamation. Whether they sung it or not, we're not not quite sure, but it's expressed in, in verse in most of our translations. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. That opening line in Latin should be familiar to lovers of Christmas songs, right? Gloria in excelsis Deo. Like the chorus of angels we have heard on high, it means glory to God in the highest. Now, I, I don't know if the angels drew out the glory part like we do, you know, glory. I don't know if they did that, but I do know that their emphasis in magnifying the newborn Messiah should be our emphasis these next few days and actually every day of our life. An exaltation of Jesus um, is, is due him. First of all, because he is the glory of heaven. Jesus is the glory of heaven. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the most glorious person in all the world because he is the only begotten Son of God. Begotten, not made, as the Nicene Creed affirms, or as the Christmas carol, O Come, All Ye Faithful, puts it, begotten, not created. They are drawing that line directly from the Nicene Creed, actually. His begottenness uh, of the Father means he is of the same essence as the Father. They share the oneness of deity. So the Son of God had no beginning, and he will have no end. He is very God of very God, true God of true God. So the glory of Christmas begins, as it were, in heaven, The Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, says that he is Christ by highest heaven adored. Why? Well, the song answers the question. Because he is Christ the everlasting Lord. That Christmas song is, of course, directly inspired by this biblical Christmas song from Luke 2. The first line of praise from the angels, glory to God in the highest heaven. Jesus is the glory of heaven. We have another affirmation here by the very emissaries of heaven. These these angels, the heavenly hosts, they they see into the other world. They're from the other world. They see things that we do not see. They experience things that we do not experience. And they are announcing then that the glory of where they're from is the Son of God. And they're announcing that this newborn baby, Jesus, is God himself in the flesh. God omniscient. Think about that. God omniscient, knows everything, who will grow as a young man, the Bible tells us, in wisdom and stature. God omnipotent, all-powerful, who as a baby relies on Mary and Joseph to carry him around. God, this is a fun one to wrap your mind around, God omnipresent, because God cannot not be omnipresent, who is here wrapped in swaddling clothes and occupying a feeding trough, which is what a manger is. This cooing baby is the king of kings. The the wriggling infant is the glory of heaven. As Martin Luther tells us, while, while Jesus was nursing at Mary's breast, he was at the same time holding the universe together with his hands. In the gospel, the glory of the Lord shines all around us, swallowing us up in glorious love, ensuring for us that the Son of God who has come for us has come from the very throne of God 
And his plan, even after his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven, is to return again in his second advent to bring the glory of heaven into all things. When the earth is remade, it will glisten with the glory of heaven, as Revelation 21 tells us. We won't need a sun or moon anymore because the Lamb of God will be the lamp of the new creation. How is that possible? Because he is glorious. He is, Hebrews 1.3 tells us, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jeremiah 23, 24, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? In other words, you, you can't put baby Jesus back in a box and store him in the attic. He who descended, Ephesians 4, 10, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Not just heaven, but also, secondly, earth. Jesus is the glory of earth. He's the glory of heaven, but he's also the glory of earth. So the angels sing, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth. Do you know the earth was originally created in peace? The Hebrew word concept employed for this peace is shalom. You've probably heard that word before, and you probably know that it means peace. Peace, shalom, peace. It's a different word than what's behind the word peace here in Luke 2.14, of course, because the original language of this text is Greek and not Hebrew. But the Greek word for peace here, and especially its application to being peace on earth, connects it to the Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom peace is not just the absence of conflict or war. Shalom peace is not just a sense of calmness a peaceful feeling. Shalom peace is about harmony. It's about unity, about everything going as it should. Everything in perfect orbit around the glory of God. So we see when Adam sins, he doesn't just fall, but the whole creation falls. God in Genesis 3 pronounces a curse on the very land itself because of Adam's disobedience. And then Romans chapter 8 tells us that this whole creation, our whole creation is, is now groaning under that curse for its redemption. Sin has fractured everything. The philosopher Cornelius Plantinga has described sin as the vandalism of shalom. R.C. Sproul says that sin is cosmic rebellion. Because of sin, the shalom of the earth is shattered. But now, at the birth of Jesus, the angels declare shalom on earth. The shalom is being restored. And we see a great symbolism of this in how Jesus does not come first to the seats of power, but to the lowest places and people. Where, I think, where the curse would be most felt. Two humble people of meager means, they're, they're not rich, they're not powerful, they're not famous. A modest carpenter, we believe, and a humble virgin. That the angels would come first, not to kings. This message is going to go to the seats of power, but it doesn't start there. 
that the angels would come first not to kings but to shepherds. We need to understand, I think, contextually what this actually, uh, what the implications of this actually are. We, we sentimentalize shepherds today, in large part because of the biblical words or, or, or picture of shepherds. Jesus, of course, is a good shepherd. David was a shepherd. Maybe we have little figurines of shepherds or pastoral images of shepherds. But in this context, sh- shepherds were not sentimental figures. They were considered, uh, in this day and age, they were considered uncouth and unkempt. Not just blue-collar, but, but low blue-collar. One commentator suggests that shepherds occupied the same rung on the social ladder of Jesus' day as despised tax collectors and, and even dung collectors. Joachim Jeremiah says that shepherds were despised in everyday life. They were seen as sort of seedy folks. Randy Alcorn adds that they were considered second class and untrustworthy. You wouldn't want to hang around shepherds. If you saw a shepherd coming down the sidewalk, you would cross the street. There used to be sort of a, 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 a cliche. Um, we don't hear it much anymore, but they would say something like, um, that guy, you know, he cusses like a sailor. I, don't, I mean, I've known some sailors. I don't know them to cuss any more than other people, but it's a cliche, like sailors, they're, they're, little, they're rough, you know, they're kind of, well, we would say back in this day, that guy cusses like a shepherd. That's what the shepherds were like. And God sends his glory to them, to them. The glory comes to the other side of the tracks. And if that's the case, there must be hope for all of us. The peace of God is coming to the lowest places. When any area floods, it's the valleys that fill first. So the glory of heaven comes to the unglory of earth and it floods our real world and confronts our real problems. It comes to a world of brokenness, a world of suffering, a world of grief, a world of sin and all of the implications and ramifications of that sin. Um, last Sunday afternoon after the church service, Becky and I went to have lunch with the Clausens, and then instead of going home, we knew we had the members meeting at at 5 o'clock and the chili cook-off at 5. And so rather than go home and just having to turn around and come right back, we just thought, we'll just stay out and we'll spend the afternoon um, at, at Starbucks. And so we went over to um, the Starbucks over there by the Red Robin. And um, I did a little bit of work, but then I ended up just kind of reading for the rest of the afternoon. I was enjoying my iced mocha and it's Christmas. I can cheat on the calories a little bit, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm reading Athanasius's On the Incarnation. As one does. Um, and I want you to think I'm real spiritual because I preached two sermons and then I went and read Athanasius in the afternoon. Uh, but I try to read it. I don't get it. I don't get to it every year, but every year at Advent, I try to reread on the incarnation. It's not super long. Um, and it was a sweet little um, afternoon. Becky's crocheting. I'm reading this ancient work of theological orthodoxy. And the, the place is pretty quiet, actually. Um, there's a few people, you know, who come in and out, a few people that were there reading or looking at their laptops or even if they were having conversations, just real quiet conversations. It was actually a pretty serene. It was a peaceful afternoon. And then um, a man came in with a, a young boy. He was an older man um, and with a little boy who looked to be around the age of maybe seven or, or, or eight. 
And the boy was, I, I, I think, I, I assume, mentally disabled in, in, in some way. I'm not an expert in, in those things, and, um, you know, so I don't want to speculate. Um, but he wasn't just rambunctious. He, he clearly had some uh, special needs of some kind. And he didn't speak, at least not while they were in the store. He didn't speak, but he did make a lot of noise. In fact, he was shrieking, um, practically screaming, very, very loud screeches. And they were waiting at a table for, the, I guess, the man's order, and, and the boy was banging on the table very loudly. And then he began to run back and forth across the coffee shop. And, and not just like, you know, um, you know, small children have restless energy, but just hard and, and, and loud. And when he got to the big picture window, if you've been in that Starbucks, you know, the big window at the far end, he got to that window and he just banged on the window so hard. I thought he was going to break it. I thought that he might crack that window. And the man who was with him, maybe his father, but by his age, I thought maybe his grandfather, he, he just seemed a little older. Um, he didn't say anything audible to him, anything that I could hear. Maybe he was whispering to him. I, I don't know, but he just calmly walked over to him and removed his hands from the window and walked him back to the table. And eventually, as the boy's behavior was clearly becoming too disruptive for the shop, um, the man, again, calmly, no, no reprimanding of him, nothing. He just sort of calmly walked him back out of the shop. And I was just was so struck by this scene. First of all, of course, I was disturbed by it because it's, it's a peaceful moment. I'm trying to read, and, and there was a, um, you know, I was... A little irritated, I suppose. But then, as I thought about it, um, it became kind of a juxtaposition for me. There's a peacefulness of the shop. Becky's crocheting. I'm reading these beautiful words from Athanasius on the incarnation, and this boy bearing a brokenness of some kind, screeching and banging and running and disrupting. And it reminded me in that moment that this is the world the Son of God came to redeem. It reminded me that the incarnation is not some stained glass window trinket kind of theology. The incarnation is a, a frailty of the flesh, a dirt under the fingernails, a dust on the feet, sweat of the brow, weariness of the bones, blood on the cross kind of theology. The incarnation is not for the sentimental exercise of academic doctrine. It is the hope and the consolation and the salvation of the shrieking disruptions and the inexplicable brokenness. And the Lord, please just give me what I need to get through the next hour, much less the next day. Just give me what I need to get through the hour. That's what the incarnation is for. The incarnation is the glory of heaven coming to earth that the glory of heaven would also be the glory of earth. In his first advent, he really does bring peace on earth. And in his second advent, he really will bring peace on earth forever. And shortly after the man and the young boy left, I, I came to page 57 of my copy of On the Incarnation. And I was just stopped dead in my tracks by one particular sentence. And, and, and I don't recall this ever striking me before. Um, I didn't hadn't underlined it or highlighted it or anything like that. It was a, it's a very long sentence, one very long sentence that practically um, took my breath away. It's it kind of a breathless sentence in and of itself. So I want to share it with you. This is what Athanasius writes. I assume in the original um, uh, text, the original language, it, it was one sentence too. I, I don't know. But in the English translation, one long sentence. This is what he says. 
for seeing the rational race perishing and death reigning over them through corruption and seeing also the threat of the transgression giving firm hold to the corruption which was upon us and that it was absurd for the law to be dissolved before being fulfilled and seeing the impropriety in what had happened that the very things of which he himself was the creator were disappearing and seeing the excessive wickedness of human beings that they gradually increased it to an intolerable pitch against themselves and seeing the liability of all human beings to death, having mercy upon our race and having pity upon our weakness and condescending to our corruption and not enduring the dominion of death lest what had been created should perish and the work of the Father himself for human beings should be in vain. He takes for himself a body and that not foreign to our own. I, I wrote in the, in the margin, I drew a star and three exclamation points, and I just wrote that sentence. <laughs> that the glory of heaven would look upon our helpless estate and see rebels dead in their sins with no thought at all towards him in any meaningful, much less spiritual way. And say to himself, not only will I save those ingrates, I'll become like one of them to do it. There's no greater news in the history of news. The glory of heaven becomes the glory of earth, incarnating as a baby, growing into a man, submitting to a torturous death on a cross, resurrecting bodily, gloriously, all to save sinners. Athanasius' long sentence is evidence. I think of his marveling at this miracle. When I, when I come across long sentences like that, um, and some in the scriptures as well, Paul's got some real breathless long sentences. As an editor, I look at it and go, I mean, this needs like six more punctuation marks, you know. But as a worshiper, I totally get it. He just can't stop. It's just flowing out of him. The glory of heaven became the glory of Athanasius' heart. This is why Christ has come, that he would become the glory of your heart. That he might be the glory of earth and thus become the treasure of sinners who will trust in him for salvation. So thirdly and finally, Jesus is the glory of believers. Jesus is the glory of believers. In his sermon on this passage, Martin Luther notes that the shepherd's field is not illuminated by the moon or the stars or even the angel's brightness, but by verse 9, the glory of the Lord. It's the glory of the Lord that shines all around them. Luther says, the gospel is a heavenly light that teaches nothing more than Christ, in whom God's grace is given to us and all human merit is entirely cast aside. It exalts only the glory of God so that no one may be able to boast of his own power, but must give God the glory. That is, of his love and goodness alone that we are saved through Christ. When we encounter the glory of God, we rightly respond like the shepherd's first response. We see plainly in the text what happens when the glory of the Lord shines about them. They're terrified. Just like John in Revelation when he's brought up and he's shown the glory of heaven. What happens? He falls down on his face as though dead. 
That's what any finite human being would do seeing the divine glory. But further, it's what any sinner would do seeing the, the glorious weight of the holiness of God. We cannot stand in that presence. We cannot see the glory of God and live. We would respond with terror. But in the good news, we hear the angelic message, which is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Same thing said to John in Revelation, by the way. God's holy wrath is satisfied by Jesus' holy sacrifice. And the result is what? It's peace. The angels sing, peace on earth to people he favors. This phrasing in our CSB um, translation, of course, departs from the traditional phrasing derived from the King James Version, which simply says, on earth peace and goodwill toward men. That's the, the most common um, rendering of the verse. It's in Christmas songs. It's in Christmas decorations. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Nearly uh, um, every modern translation, however, gets, I think, the better sense of the verse, which isn't peace on earth and goodwill to everyone indiscriminately. On the way to church this morning, we heard um, Santa Claus is coming to town. The song, by the way, not like the news headline or something. Yeah. Um, he's not. Anyway, I won't do that. I won't talk about Santa Claus. Um, but in the song, Santa knows we're all God's children. That makes everything right. I just thought, well, there's this heresy on my radio. I just heard angels we have heard on high, and now i got to hear. That makes everything right. No, this isn't peace on earth and goodwill to everyone indiscriminately, depend, you know, regardless of what you believe, and et cetera, et cetera. No, this is peace on earth to those who know the love of God. Bruce Larson puts it this way. The best translation the Greek scholars have come up for this message of peace is peace among men and women who are the recipients of God's good pleasure. If you're able to receive what God wants to give, Larson says, the message of peace is for you. Both Robert Stein and Tom Schreiner say in their commentaries that the peace in view here is synonymous with salvation. This isn't just having a, some kind of peace of mind. This isn't just again, a feeling of calmness or something like that. This is being reconciled with the holy God. The shalom that's broken because of sin now being restored because of Christ. So with that in mind, we see how the second part makes more sense. Peace to people he favors. People he favors are those who have submitted themselves to his lordship, who have repented of their sin and, and turned from pursuing their own glory and instead treasure Christ. You might look at the verse and go, well, who are people he favors? Is it men? Is it women? Is it Jews? Is it Gentiles? Is it rich people, poor people? That's not the emphasis. Men, women, rich, poor, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, any ethnicity, no matter where you're from, no matter what your social background, if you want Christ, he favors you. And his favor is upon you. And they receive the peace of salvation as a free gift of grace. No work can earn it. No religiosity can achieve it. He gives it freely. It's his Christmas present to sinners. John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. And then he adds in a, an echo 
of the angel's words of comfort. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Those who refuse this grace, their hearts will be troubled and fearful, especially on the last day, the day of judgment. They will not know peace because they will not know the favor of God. But when Christ becomes your peace, Christ becomes your joy, your treasure, your glory, you will glory in him. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. Um, earlier uh, in the year this summer, we visited um, the Holy Land with some of the, the faculty of Midwestern Seminary. And um, at the end of the, the time there, of course, we went to the old city in Jerusalem and we found our way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is built upon the place where they say Christ was crucified, Golgotha, and the place where he was raised. I, I don't know if you're like me, when you see those things in that close proximity, I didn't realize how close they thought uh, the place of the crucifixion and the place of the resurrection were. I did not picture them so close together, but so close together that they've built a church over those spots. And so we went to go see, and um, I know there's rival you know, sites, there's another place they say this is the, you know, the real garden tomb, and there's another place they say this is the real Golgotha, but a lot of historians, scholars, they think, no, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that's actually uh, where it is, historically attested and all those sorts of things. One thing you notice when you walk in is not just there's a church over these sites, but just how, for lack of a better word, gaudied up everything is. Um, they've, they've, gone, they've added more glory in the decorations there. And I don't know if it's just because I'm a Baptist, like, uh, I mean, it, it looked like a disco, kind of, right? Chandeliers and shiny things and just all this stuff thrown in there. I wanted to see Golgotha, and what I saw was a, a gold thing on top of a glass case, and there's a rock kind of behind there, you know? That's where it is. Oh, it's behind all this stuff? I mean, I want to see the thing, not the stuff, you know? And when we come to visit the, the, the tomb, there's, of course, a long line of people who are waiting to, to see this is the tomb where where Christ was buried and where he was resurrected. And there's an Orthodox priest outside, and he's policing who can view the tomb and who can't. And he turned one of the ladies in our group away. And he didn't just tell her she couldn't come in. He kept, like, following her and kind of harassing her as, uh, to make sure she would leave the area entirely. And I thought, first of all, what an advertisement for the empty tomb of our Lord, that those who come in faith are turned away for not measuring up in some way. And this priest kind of policing the garden tomb reminded me of the angel put at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. He can't come in here anymore. He's got a flaming sword. He's barring the way. Sinners cannot re-enter. With Adam, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We can't get into that garden any more than Adam and Eve could. But now... In the Christmas story, we have angels announcing that the second Adam has come and the glory is coming with him. And these angels are not barring the way. They are announcing that the way into the garden of fellowship with God is now open. The doors flung wide open. And they don't come with swords, they come with songs. There's not animosity between God and sinners. God and sinners reconciled. 
Because of Christ, there is peace on earth to people he favors. Christ, the glory of heaven, isn't like that priest outside the sepulcher. He brings the glory to those who love him. And anyone who comes in faith to him, he welcomes in. You don't measure up? Good news. It's sinners that he's died for. It's sinners that he's saving. It's sinners that he is bringing into fellowship with himself, believe it or not. How else would Jesus become the glory of believers? If we already had glory, we wouldn't glory in him. But we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so he brings us his glory in his gospel. And Jesus, the second Adam, the, the, the last Adam, opens the way to the garden of paradise, bringing peace to an earth that has not known peace for thousands of years. To the naked, he clothes in his righteousness. To the ashamed, he comforts in his grace. To the sinful, he cleanses with his blood. The glory of heaven becomes the glory of earth that he might become the glory of every believing heart. Oh, come, let us adore him. To him belongs all glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Christ Jesus. Keep us from getting distracted, even as we enjoy the good gift of this holiday and all the wonderful gifts that come with it, spending time with family and eating good food and listening to good music and watching fun movies and all, all the opening of gifts and, and all of that. Help us to give praise and thanks to you above all these things, to receive them with thanksgiving to you, knowing that your son Christ Jesus is the greatest treasure. Father, I pray that you would plant that worship in our hearts and fan the flame of that adoration in our hearts. And it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.